For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Okay. Uh, Good morning, everyone, and welcome. We have uh, several new folks this morning, which is great. I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding teacher of Ancient Dragon Zengate, and I'm really happy to be introducing Zoketsu Norman Fisher, an old friend. Uh, Norman's probably, well, certainly one of the most prominent teachers in our Suzuki Roshi lineage, and he spoke here in Chicago for Ancient Dragons Endgate back in June 2013. Maybe there's a handful of people who were here then. Um, he's former abbot of San Francisco Zen Center, uh, now one of the senior Dharma teachers at San Francisco Zen Center. He's also head of the Everyday Zen Foundation, where he teaches his teach, teachings. We, we, Norman and I practiced together at Green Gulch Farm for a while, which was wonderful. Uh, amongst many things that Norman has done, he developed the uh, women's Zen uh, Buddhist lineage uh, paper, which uh, many of us are grateful for. Um, he's also uh, been very involved in interreligious dialogues, as reflected in Some of his books, some of his many books, including uh, Zen-inspired translation of the Psalms, uh, uh, Sailing Home. So this is for our Sangha uh, classics professor, David Ray. Sailing Home is using Homer's uh, Odyssey, a book on uh, the Buddhist perspective on the Benedictine uh, reflections on the Benedictine rules. Uh, he also did a book on his Jewish roots in Jerusalem, Moonlight. He's done a number of Buddhist books, including when you most recently, When You Greet Me, I Bow, and uh, Things Could Be Otherwise, Imagination and the Bodhisattva Path, uh, Training in Compassion, Practice in uh, in the Zhong uh, Lu, I don't know if I said that right. Uh, Norman is also uh, a very uh, noted, renowned poet. Uh, in many books, uh, most, one of the recent ones there was A Clattering, which I really enjoy, enjoying, and The Strugglers, and Like a Walk Through the Park. <clears throat> These were poems written when Norman was at Tassajara. So anyway, there's, it's, it's really a great pleasure to introduce for our Ancient Dragons and Gate Sangha, Norman Fisher, my old friend. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Ty, again. Everybody can hear me okay? Yeah, great. Yeah, it's nice to be, it's nice to be here. It was 10 years ago, huh? 20... 13, I remember that visit well when you had that <clears throat> storefront Zendo. That was really nice. 
Yes, Tygen and I are old pals, and uh, it's a delight to see him and all of you. We actually uh, hung out together fairly recently when I was in Chicago for the World Parliament of Religions. We had we had dinner together. So it's good to be here. Um, this morning, what I would like to do is uh, share with you <clears throat> uh, an essay that I wrote for Buddha Dharma magazine. Uh, it hasn't come out yet. <clears throat> they asked me to write this uh, because they're going to do a, a whole uh, spread. They call it, uh, oddly, a package. That's magazine lingo for a whole series of articles on the same subject. So they're going to do a packet on uh, the, on the teacher in Buddhism. And so they asked me to write a, an essay that would be sort of a general introduction to many articles on this subject. And I, I often do that, you know, just as a practical matter to save time. If somebody asks me to write an essay, I think, oh, good, I can give it as a Dharma talk and then I'll save me time. So, so that's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share this essay with you. So, so uh, here's what I wrote for them. The three treasures are the foundation of Buddhism. Buddha Dharma Sangha, Buddha the teacher, Dharma the teaching, Sangha the community. Taking refuge in the three treasures is the beginning and also the end of the Buddhist path. The beginning, because from the first you depend on them to guide your way. And the end, because your spiritual transformation brings you to appreciation of an identity with the three treasures at their most profound level. The three treasures uh, balance and support one another. Without the Sangha, there's no companionship, there's no encouragement, there's no support, and there's nothing there to uphold the Dharma. Without the Dharma, there's no way of life and no way of understanding life that would hold the Sangha together. And without the Buddha who teaches the Dharma and leads the Sangha, there's no path at all. So the three treasures form an inseparable unit, each treasure depending on the others, each one equal and central. I'm, I'm off my essay for a second here. As Taigen uh, just said, I, I have done lots of uh, interreligious work, and, and, and it's uh, mostly because I'm very aware of the fact that we are living in a uh, materialistic, secular, but also a Judeo-Christian society. And so there's no way that this escapes us. In other words, this is embedded in us. So when we understand Buddhism, we're understanding it through those filters. So I often think about Buddhism in that context. And so that explains the next paragraph in the essay. In theistic traditions, the framework seems different. Where there is a God, an absolute, there can be no other comparable factor. No human being can be on the same level as God. There can be clergy, there can be teachers proficient in the doctrine, even be priests who have some special capacity for intercession, but no person in a theistic tradition 
is integral to the goal of union with or obedience to God, whatever you consider the goal to be in a theistic tradition, in the way that the teacher is integral to the accomplishment of the Buddhist path. In some versions of the Buddhist tradition, the teacher is highly respected, very respected, almost deified. The teacher is understood to be a special kind of being, not like you and me, a kind of guru with the unique power to bring a faithful student to realization. And I remember well, as Taigan does, the, the early days uh, in Western Buddhism, when the older generation of Asian Buddhist teachers, including Suzuki Roshi, was still alive. And the sense of excitement and hushed reverence that you felt in the room whenever such a venerable, venerable person entered it. It was so exciting. It almost took your breath away. But this version of the teacher has, to me, always seemed a little out of scale. I wonder how much of it wasn't a kind of 60s fantasy. But it was very real at the time. And many thousands of people of my generation, our generation, made lifetime commitments to practice the Dharma based on faith in these charismatic teachers. But whether or not you think that was overblown, this powerful sense of a special virtue of the teacher was a true reflection, I think, of the position of Buddhist teachers in traditional Asian cultures of the past, where family and national structures were, and maybe still are, extremely hierarchical and usually male-dominated. You know, Confucian cultures, very different from ours. And that's why, even in Buddhist traditions that have this idea of the teacher embedded in them, preservation of this in the West, or even maybe in the East of today, seems to me to be doubtful and even problematic because it overbalances the teacher, placing them above the Dharma and the Sangha. So, so the question is, how can we respect and empower teachers uh, without having this get out of scale? And this is really hard now, it seems to me, because in Western cultures, we are so mistrustful of power and hierarchy, maybe more than we ever have been. Even our acknowledged moral heroes, as the tell-all biographies attest, have feet of clay. Just We just didn't know it at the time, but now the biographers are showing us all their affairs and their moral corruption. And these are our heroes. So why would we trust any leader, especially a spiritual one? Some people decide they're going to do that anyway, despite all this. And so they 
ignore all this and they have a leap of faith and they end up completely out of whack, often losing all critical distance and any sense of personal agency. So this is not an easy question, how to trust teachers in the right way. Now, we could go the opposite way, and, and I think some sanghas do this. A sangha without teachers, without hierarchies, a kind of a crowd-sourced dharma that gives people what they want, what they expect, and what they feel they need. This is very democratic. It goes really well with capitalism and marketing. And in a way, you know, politically, it sort of sounds good. And who knows? Maybe it is pretty good. The new Buddhism. But I don't think, for me, it seems like enough. Without the Buddha treasure, the Dharma and the Sangha treasures are pretty hard to sustain. So it looks to me like we have to figure this out in our various cultural contexts, and it's a challenge. And I don't think anybody really knows how to do it, and it's a very subtle thing. Nobody will be able to really understand it. We'll collectively work it out, each community by trial and error, sometimes painful error, as we have seen uh, all too often. But I have a lot of trust that it will work out little by little over time. The three, the three treasures are too powerful and too precious to ever disappear. And they will always find a way. The Buddha gives a very interesting set of instructions about teachers in the Kanki Sutta, which is number 95 in the Majjhima Nikaya. And you can find this online in several translations, and I'm going to use the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation. It's a longish, as these things go, sutta. Uh, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But the issue in the sutta is, how do we know the truth? How do we awaken? Specifically, how do we know the truth for ourselves? So here's what the Buddha has to say about that question. How do you know the truth for yourself? The first thing he says is, find a teacher. That's the first requirement. To, to know the truth for yourself, first find a teacher. Next, examine that teacher over time to see whether they have sufficiently overcome greed, aversion, and delusion. So that's how you begin to find the truth for yourself. You find a teacher and you examine that teacher to see if they have overcome sufficiently greed, hate, and delusion. Now, so this implies two things. First, obviously, that you don't do this on your own. You need a teacher. And that it is your responsibility to find and evaluate this teacher. Second, that what you're looking for in the teacher 
is not verbal, intellectual, or spiritual skills, but rather to ascertain whether the person is a fair, ethical, stable, and kind human being. In other words, the person has overcome the natural self-centered impulses that human beings are all subject to. Now, my reading is the Buddha is not saying that this has to be a perfect human being because uh, there are no perfect human beings, only that this is a person who is aware of who they are and are more or less in command of themselves. And furthermore, that this will be evident to you when you examine their conduct. So that's the beginning. Once you've found such a teacher, one you can have confidence in, then you hang around them, you visit them, you listen to their teachings. And then the next thing you have to do is investigate and reflect on those teachings and see whether you really feel that they are true. And that's up to you. And, apparently, the Buddha thinks, you can do it. Ignorant and deluded as we all are, apparently the Buddha thinks that we can evaluate and reflect on the teachings and determine whether they seem true. However, if you didn't have the initial faith in the teacher, the confidence that it's worthwhile to listen and evaluate, you wouldn't do that in the first place. The next thing, when you have investigated and come to appreciate the teachings, you will naturally want to apply energy and effort to scrutinize them more and more deeply until, as the Buddha says, and this is a direct quote from the Sutra, you will realize with the body, with the body, the supreme truth, and see it by penetrating it with wisdom. You will realize with the body the supreme truth and see it by penetrating it with wisdom. As the sutra goes on, you realize that this realizing and seeing is the initiatory moment of awakening. Now you know, with your whole body, that the teachings are true. With your whole heart, you know it. You might not understand them exactly, you might not be able to explain them, you, you know, don't need to be an expert on them, but you really now know for yourself that they're true. But that's not the end of the path. The Buddha goes on. This is another direct quote. The final arrival at the truth lies in the repetition, development, and cultivation of those same things. In other words, awakening is an ongoing affair. The final arrival is the ongoing practice of cultivation and refinement. This almost sounds like Dogen, right? Practice is realization. Realization is practice. That seems to be what the Buddha is saying here. So you do the practice. You realize the way. Nobody else is going to do this for you. But in order to do this, you must find a teacher that you can have faith in 
because the teacher will illuminate the Dharma and the Sangha for you. The teacher will open up the great road. And so the magic here is trust in the teacher. That's the secret sauce of the Buddhist path. And the path begins with it, and maybe it ends with it. And I, that, that feels so true to me. When the sutra says uh, the final arrival, to me, the final arrival is itself trust. This is a deep thing, right? To really and truly trust yourself and the world as it is, completely and absolutely, no matter what comes. To have that kind of trust and confidence in self and others and the world to be as they truly are. To me, that is the essence of liberation. And this trust is achieved through the ongoing process of practice, which involves our relationships with our teachers. Coming to have confidence in someone whom we look to as an example and an inspiration is necessary in order to do the hard work of a lifetime's transformation. Someone whom we probably idealize at first, but eventually come to see more fully and and love all the same. And if we can go through this journey of loving maturity with another person, that means we can go through it with ourselves. We can trust ourselves to be ourselves, trust the world to be the world, trust the Dharma to be the trust to, to be the Dharma, trust impermanence to be impermanence. In Zen, sometimes uh, they describe awakening as meeting your true self. And this is not something you can do alone. Yes, it's your body on the cushion, your effort to be diligent and attentive in your practice, and no one quite understands it the way you do. But to come to see your true self, you must be seen by the true self of another. Otherwise, your spiritual accomplishment, however great it may be, will retain a shadow of self-deception. And here is where the teacher is absolutely essential. Not because they are all wise and all seeing and sneakily careful, sneakily capable of straightening you out. But just because they are willing to continue to live and practice with you, willing to be the background to the foreground of your effort. And I've I found this to be true in my life of practice. All my teachers were trustworthy. They were always themselves as they were. They were never as I wish them to be. To learn to truly trust them is perhaps the most important thing that I've learned. Because that enables me to trust myself. And if I can trust myself, I can trust everyone else. And this is the greatest gift, the supreme practice 
the source of all creativity and growth. That's compassion. So that was more or less, I didn't read it exactly word for word, but that's more or less the essay that I wrote for the Buddha Dharma magazine. But I want to now say a little more here that not part of the essay, um, because I want to read, there's another part of the Kanki Sutta that I think is really interesting and important, was not relevant to my topic for the essay, but I want to share it with you now. In the, in the Sutta, the, the Buddha's teaching that I, about teachers that I just shared with you comes in response to a question uh, about truth. Uh, asked by a young Brahmin. And now I'm going to quote a little bit from the sutra. Then the Brahmin student, Kapatika, thought, the recluse Gautama has turned toward me. Suppose I ask him a question. Then he said to the Blessed One, Master Gautama, in regard to the ancient Brahmanic hymns that have come down through oral transmission, preserved in the collections, the Brahmins come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. What does Master Gautama say about this? So here he's asking Buddha about the truth claims of his own tradition, the Vedic tradition, which is to memorize, recite, ritualize, and pass on the ancient Vedic texts that have been handed down for millennia. And all the people who hold those texts are certain that they contain the truth. So, Buddha, you who apparently do not believe in this Vedic truth, what do you have to say about this? That's what the young Brahmin is asking the Buddha. And the Buddha, just like Socrates, often answered a question with a question. So here he does that. He says, How then, he says to him, among the Brahmins, is there even one Brahmin who says this, I know this, I see this, only this is true, anything else is wrong. Now, maybe you don't notice the difference, but there's a very important difference here. On the one side, the Brahmins are saying, this is true, anything else is wrong. And on the other side, the Buddha is asking, has anyone ever said, I know this is true. I know this is true. I have seen this. And so I am sure that nothing else is true. Anyway, the young Brahmin says, no, he has not heard any of his teachers say that they personally know something to be true, that they have seen it for themselves, and so they are sure of it because of that. They assert that they know the truth and that no other truth is possible, but they do not say that they have known it and seen it for themselves. How then, young Brahmin, the Buddha goes on, 
among the Brahmins, is there even a single teacher or a single teacher's teacher back to the seventh generation of teachers who says, I know this, I see this, only this is true, anything else is wrong. No, Master Gautama, none of them have said that. How then, young Brahmin? What about the ancient Brahma seers, the creators of the hymns, the composers of the hymns? Whose ancient hymns that were formerly chanted, uttered, and compiled, the Brahmins nowadays still that Brahmins nowadays still chant and repeat. Did even these who wrote the text say, We know this, we see this, only this is true? No, Master Gautama. The young man has to answer again. So then, the Buddha says, it seems that among the Brahmins, even going back to the very beginning, there's not even a single one who says, I know this, I see this, only this is true. Anything else is wrong. Suppose there were a file of blind men, each in touch with the next. The first one does not see, the middle one does not see, and the last one does not see. So too, young Brahmin, in regard to their statement, the Brahmins seem to be like a file of blind men. The first one does not see, the middle one does not see, the last one does not see. What do you think, young Brahmin? If that's so, doesn't the faith of the Brahmins turn out to be, turn out to be groundless? So the Buddha is saying here that there's only one truth that's worth knowing, and that's the truth that you know and see for yourself. The young Brahmin actually has an answer for this. He says, well, the Brahmins honor this the truth of the Vedas, not only out of faith, they honor it as oral tradition. So that has some truth validity, oral tradition. And then the Buddha goes on a brief uh, exposition, which is carried out in dialogue. Mainly the burden of it is that anything that is accepted through faith, through approval, meaning uh, I agree with it. It sounds right to me because I agree with it. So, so anything that is verified through faith, through approval, through oral tradition, through reasoning, through reflection, might be true, but it also might not be true. So when you have accepted something on the basis of one or more of these five criteria, you can say, well, according to my faith or tradition, it seems true to me. Or according to my reasoning, according to my reflection, it seems true to me. But you cannot say, I know it, I see it, it is true, and anything else is false. So, Understandably, the young Brahmin, who we have learned earlier is a very talented and important young Brahmin, is getting a little disturbed by this attitude of the Buddha. He's not, the Buddha is, is sort of, you know, very gently and carefully critiquing the Vedic truth. He's not, you know, yelling about it. He's saying, no, it might be true, but it also might not be true. So the, the Brahmin then says, but okay, so how? 
do you preserve the truth? And that's the phrase used. How do you preserve the truth? So he's a little shaken. How do we know the truth? If all the ways we have had before of knowing the truth are in fact slightly shaky. And here's what the Buddha says. This is quoting now. If a person has faith, he preserves the truth when he says, my faith is thus. But he does not yet come to the definite conclusion, only this is true, anything else is wrong. In this way, young Brahman, there is the preservation of truth. In this way, he preserves the truth. In this way, we describe the preservation of truth. But as yet, there is no discovery of truth. And the Buddha repeats this formula for all the other ways of deciding to hold the truth. All of which will give you a view, a perspective that might be correct, but it will not give you certainty. So the Buddha here is distinguishing between what he's calling preserving truth, by which he means understanding that you can hold a view, even though you know it can't necessarily be, isn't, isn't necessarily true, but you believe it to be true. And a distinction between that, preserving truth, and discovering truth, by which he means seeing and knowing something for sure. So then when the Brahmin says, okay, well, if that's how you preserve truth, how do you discover truth? And then the Buddha responds with that whole teaching that I repeated during my in my essay about first find a teacher, then do this, then do that. That's how you discover truth. So anyway, I thought this is an interesting thing, at least to me. I don't know if it's interesting to you, but to me it seems very interesting that to preserve the truth, which we would all want to do, requires a kind of modesty about what we know. I have lots of viewpoints and opinions about things I think I know. But if I'm honest and I really look into this further, I, I realize that, well, you know, maybe I'm not right about these things. As a matter of fact, and maybe this is just me, but it might be you too, the more I look at what I think about things, the more I can't really be sure. I still agree with myself. In other words, I don't need to be confused. I still think this or that. But it is good, and I am preserving the truth. If I say to myself and other people, this is my view. This is what I think I know. And it might be otherwise. Don't you think the world would be a better place if more people preserved the truth in this way? And were a little more modest about all the different views they hold, which they have not? seen or known firsthand for themselves with their whole bodies and minds? Wouldn't that be nice if people said, well, yes, this is what I think. Maybe what you think otherwise is correct, but this is what I think. So when the Buddha is talking now about discovering truth as, as opposed to preserving truth, 
He's not talking then about views or ideas. He's talking about a human experience that you cannot but be certain of. A human experience that will pervade your whole body and mind. I, myself, am certain of impermanence. I am certain of suffering. I am certain of the profundity of birth and death, of the tenderness of the human heart because of this, and of the need to be as compassionate and kind as I possibly can be. I don't need to be right about these things. I don't need to convince anyone else of them. I don't need to be far known far and wide for these things because they are not some special esoteric knowledge. They're just things that everyone knows or things that are true for everyone. So all that, that doesn't matter. But it does matter that I deeply know these things because then I have a path through life. And I always know what to do, even when, as is so often the case, I have no idea what to do. In other words, I can tolerate being confused about this or that, because in the end, I am not confused. Because what really matters is very clear. Anyway, uh, I stumbled into that Kanki Sutra. It's a pretty good sutra, right? I, I never, I, I don't know how I, you know how the internet is funny that way. You cruise around and before you know it, you're in some rabbit hole. And this was a pretty good rabbit hole to fall into, I thought. So thank you for uh, letting me share it with you. I hope, I hope you found it uh, illuminating. C-A-N-K-I, I think is the, you can, if you Google the Kanki, C-A-N-K-I, you can, you can look up the sutra and, and check and see if uh, uh, I was true to it in my, in my exposition of it. Thank you all for listening. Do we chant at the end, Taigen, or what do we do now? We'll have a, a period of question and answer, and then we'll do the four bodhisattva out. So right now, if you're willing to uh, receive questions, Norman, uh, anyone has questions or responses, please keep it brief so as many people as possible can respond. And uh, Norman may or may not have anything to say after what you said. I don't have any questions, but I can respond to things people say. Yeah. Okay, uh, so uh, thank you so much. Uh, Ruben, maybe you can help me call on people online and people in the room also. Please feel free to raise your hand and we will have some discussion. People online can uh, have a raise hand function. Randy, Randy Hester looks like he's in his car. <laughs> not, not too unusual to have a, a, a Dharma meeting and somebody's in their car. You know? <laughs> well, we there, there are several vehicles and they're all part of the one vehicle, of course. Um, so, Randy, did you have a comment?
Well, um, Norman, I, I noticed that you're um, having your Dharma seminar coming up on uh, Bazubandhu's uh, Three Natures. I was wondering if do you have um, how what your talk today, um, how does that uh, figure into how you're presenting this, uh, the Three Natures teachings? Well, I, I think, uh, thank you for asking that, Randy. Yeah, we started last Wednesday, uh, with our, uh, seminar on the three, Basavanda's three natures. Um, well, I, uh, my kind of global assumption is that, uh, there's nothing in Buddhism that isn't already there in the Pali sutras. That uh, the Mahayana sutras, of course, bring out aspects of the Pali sutras that are kind of hidden in there that you would really emphasize. So the Mahayana sutras emphasize different things. So, so here uh, in the in the Kanki Sutra, the Buddha is not uh, the Buddha is not talking about um, consciousness per se. But uh, when you think about it, um, uh, you know the difference between discovering the truth with your whole body, which is an odd, you know, you, what does that really mean? You, you, it sounds good, right? And you kind of intuitively understand it, but you're not sure what does it mean to understand the truth with your whole body. And in the way our way of thinking, the truth is something that seems like you understand with your mind, you know, ah, that's true, I get it, you know. So what does it mean, the whole body? And I think that's where the mind only, or consciousness only, or Vasubandha's three natures come in, because for us, consciousness is not just what goes on in my mind. Consciousness is the whole, the whole world that you that you touch in a way more. So you touch the world more fundamentally than only with your mind and with your thinking and your conceptualizations. Uh -huh. and so, so I think that in that way, that's how I would find uh, that's how I would find a connection between this sutta and the Vasubandhu's three natures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we are so ingrained in the idea that there's a huge gap between the world of, the, on the one hand, mental, consciousness, spiritual, and on the other hand, physical, material. And, and in Western thought, these two things are like completely different from one another. They somehow coexist, but they're completely different from one another. And in the Buddhist universe, they are one and the same. Hmm. And so the mind only, I think, teachings uh, kind of are meant to make that fundamentally clear to us in our practice. Hmm. So thanks for that. That was a, a very, very intricate, subtle question, actually. How did I do it? Did I answer it? <laughs> We have two people online with questions. Start yeah. with Brett Guy and then David Ray. Oh. Thank you um, for your wonderful talk. Thank you, Brian. Um, can you hear me okay? Perfect. Um, I, I hate to use the word fan, but I've been a fan of yours for some time. Uh, ever since I bought, opening to you, your translation of the Psalms, with a 
Zen perspective. And uh, I, I brought it down today because I, I felt it has relevance to your talk. Um, because in it, uh, ironically, Psalm 95, <laughs> not uh, Sutta 95, uh, there's a line where it says, for you give us the gift of sovereignty, a power above all others, the majesty of our absolutely being. Uh, and it strikes me that the you in the Psalms that the writer is addressing could be the teacher, uh, but a, a, the teacher in a number of senses uh, where, and, you know, maybe you could speak to your own experience of this, that, you know, I've, Earlier in my life, I had idealized notions of teachers, and then often I was disappointed when they turned out to be, as you you know, some say flawed, you know, imperfect human beings. Uh, and only later on did I realize that in a way that was the teaching uh, that I needed to be learning, that as long as I placed my faith in a you outside of my own experience of being imperfect, uh, that I was going to be continually disappointed and not really learning the valuable lesson here. Uh, and only when I kind of realized about, uh, in the Korean tradition, they emphasize don't know mind, you know, the, the idea that you meet every moment and every person and every teacher with, with this not knowing. Um, and if you can abide with that, that, that in a way is, you know, the, the true blessing. So, what was your experience in your um, coming to Zen, having your own teachers? You know, what was your experience with your own teachers? Well, first of all, I appreciate everything you just said there, Brian. It was very, very beautiful and seemed, seems true to me. Uh, uh, well, I was very lucky because uh, I... Uh, Somehow or other, circumstances were such that uh, I could tell in the very beginning that my teachers were were often wrong about things. <laughs> so I and and you know I I uh, that from the from the very very first that that didn't disappoint me. In fact, that cheered me up you know, because uh, because I was never interested in some kind of a teaching that would. Uh, you know, propel me out of this world. I, I I was always only interested in a teaching that would help me to survive this world, you know, as it is. Because uh, I, I kind of always appreciated the craziness and the messiness of this human world. So uh, the idea that I was going to have a teacher who was so spiritually uh, uh, elevated that, uh, you know, I had to leave the world behind and its messiness always it didn't never appeal to me. I would have never followed such a teacher. So I found a teacher that was uh, that I could see, you know, was somewhat conf not confused, but uh, was not definitely. Basically, he thought he was right about a lot of things that he was not right about. And so I said, okay, that makes sense, uh, and I can, I can, uh, I can uh, do this practice, and I don't need to believe everything the teacher says, but I can do this practice. So. So that's how it was for me. I, and it just it was it was a kind of a, a circumstantial. Uh, not not that I was so smart that I saw this. It's just that circumstances were such that something occurred that was obviously incorrect that the teacher thought was correct. And, and it just ah oh that's interesting. So I saw that from from the beginning. And I've always been to me um, 
to me, it's a very, you know, like there's something um, poignant and beautiful, right, about someone who is, uh, you know, uh, tries. I think it's it's true of everybody, really, isn't it? We we really try hard to be good, and we can never quite manage, you know. And that's a beautiful thing to me. It seems like to keep trying, right, when you know you can never quite manage it to me is better than trying and succeeding, which I think probably is impossible. You know, anybody who succeeds in being the perfect human being has got to be kidding themselves, uh, in my in my opinion. Thank you. I think I might be next. Um, thank you so much for that talk. I really appreciate it. Um, this is in between a question and a comment, and it's it's about teachers and and the the sort of concern that you expressed about you know the 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 great importance attached to teachers and and also sort of American the American whatever we want to call it culture of suspicion or cynicism and um and 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 you talked about the role of the teacher you know not really being comparable in other traditions and I found myself questioning that it seems to me that like you know there's so much guru bhakti and so much Indic traditions and I've experienced some of that and in 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 the Catholic part of 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 my journey it, it it seems like maybe I didn't have one but I feel like spiritual directors really are endowed with a kind of spiritual religious authority and then by the end of of, of your talk it, it really sounded like part of why the teacher is so important is coming to a kind of, you know, healthy skepticism where I acknowledge that I, I, that, that I don't know everything I think I know and neither does my teacher. Yeah, well, that's interesting what you say. Uh, now that I think about it, yeah, for sure. I mean, in Indian, in, in what they call Hinduism, where there is God, I guess, or gods and a supreme god there there are gurus that are deified but i and i don't really know about those traditions so i'm not i i don't i don't maybe somebody here knows more about this than i do but isn't there a, an idea of avatars of the god so that the guru is kind of like uh, a living uh God, God's manifestation on earth. So the guru is not just a human being. You know, the guru has, the guru is almost like the God. It's a little bit like Jesus, you know, is not just a human being. Jesus is God. So Jesus is not, whereas the, the Buddhist teacher, I think, is not God, because there is no God, right? There is no idea of God. So I, I think that, uh, and, and in, in the case of the Catholic tradition that I know a little bit more about, um, you know, there's always, of course, even in the secular world, right, we deify uh, our politicians or our rock stars or something like that, so that you don't need to have, uh, believe in God in order to elevate someone to a, a, a uh, uh, an out-of-scale position. But um, it seems like in the Catholic Church, uh, even the Pope is in service of God. The Pope is not a god or an avatar of god but i don't know maybe all of this is just theory because in the end yeah people seem to want to make other certain other people into very very special people and you know like they will pay 
you know, $500 a ticket to hear that very special person sing a song. So obviously they're not paying $500 to hear their cousin sing at a bar mitzvah, you know, so, <laughs> so we want to do that. We want to make some people very, very, very special and make it exciting to be in the presence of those people. Some, this is something human beings seem to seem to want to do. And I've never, I've never been a fan of it. I've never, I've never liked that so much. I think everybody should be equally special, you know, and to make somebody else that special is to, is to sort of, denigrate all the other people. It doesn't seem right to me. I guess David Weiner is next, and then if there's anybody in the room here who has a comment or question, you can take next. So David? I hope I hope I don't ramble too much here. A um, couple of points. One thing I think in Japanese, the word for teacher is sensei, which means prior born. And I think that comes throughout Asia that we look to our elders, that they have experience. And because they have experience, they are more knowledgeable than we are because they are prior born. Um, but that might not necessarily be the case. Um, I think of your Psalms. I'm actually a practicing chaplain and I use Psalm 121 a lot, which it's all about some of the Psalms are really about protection. People are looking for protection. And Psalm 121 says the Lord who of Israel does not neither sleep nor slumber and he will not move your foot and he protects you from this. You will not be burnt by the sun nor Will uh, will you be hurt by the moon? Um, and I think part of that is people are looking for protection. That's what they're looking for, a deity. Um, is protection because of the, their, their fear of what might happen to them. Um, but I think in, in, in John 1, in, in the first uh, verses 4 and 5, it talks about, and he brought the life to people in the, in the and the light was, and life was the light, and the darkness cannot overcome the light. And I think that's where the essence is in Buddhism as well, is can we find the light that will overcome the darkness, that will overcome our fears? Um, I I am concerned about, uh, about being so absolute because Finding a teacher, and I ask this to you, finding a teacher and believing in a teacher so much that a person is perfect, that not that a delusion itself? That we think that something is so perfect that it's really a, delu- a delusion that can something really be so perfect? And I ask, is, is it what you think about that? Yeah, I think it's a delusion. And uh, I, I should say, too, that um, despite everything I was saying today, uh, if somebody if somebody said to me, uh, do I need a teacher in order to practice Buddhism? Uh, I would probably say, well, it's a good idea. And if you find a teacher, uh, don't fail to take up study with that teacher. 
But if you don't find a teacher, because people might be in a place where they can't find a teacher, then you can practice anyway. You can practice, uh, you can sit, you can find other people to sit with, you can study the teachings, you can listen to talks. Uh, so I wouldn't want to say that, uh, forget about it. If you don't have a teacher, you're wasting your time. So sometimes people say things like that. And uh, there's a point to saying that. But but no, I, I think that people can practice effectively uh, without a teacher and they can have the practice can change their lives for the better, I think without a teacher. But I think that it's a one, there's a, there's a dimension to the practice that uh, I think doesn't, doesn't occur without, without a teacher. So. Yeah. A teacher, a teacher can't prove as a guide that to show us to see what we're not seeing. That is outside our 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 line of sight. Yeah, because we're all we're all conditioned enormously conditioned to see things in a certain way, and that conditioning has baked into it suffering. So if we're trying to overcome suffering, we need to get outside of that conditioning. Uh, we we can never throw it away and become an unconditioned person, or even a, a differently conditioned person. But we are conditioning ourselves every single day, and if we condition ourselves along the lines of the dharma then we then we then we change and we need someone outside of our conditioning maybe to help us with that proposition yeah yeah well thank thank you thank you thank you, uh, thank you norman there's a couple of hands in the room but i just got david weiner's question uh he, he was using the word protection and i thought of refuge which we talk about more in Buddhism, and I wonder if you could say something about refuge and taking refuge, maybe as opposed to protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to David's idea that yeah, you know, it's it's a lonely, vulnerable situation being a human being, and and so uh, naturally we seek. Uh, I, I guess you're drawing a distinction, Tagen, between protection and refuge. Uh, I guess maybe protection in, uh, implies a protector. There's someone who is someone else who's protecting you, whereas refuge maybe more implies finding a place of refuge, a, a place of safety. And and uh, yes, when we take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha, I was saying in the beginning of my essay that that's the beginning of the path. It's also the end of the path. You know, we take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. We're taking refuge in our own body and mind. We're taking refuge in the world. We're taking refuge in the present moment. And we're never without that refuge. We're never without that uh, sense of uh, being held and, and belonging, no matter what happens. And, and things will happen that, you know, we lose our life in the end, right? So we know that's going to happen. But even then, uh, we're we're in we're, we're taking refuge in the three treasures, and we're protected and nurtured and held by the three treasures in that. So yeah, that feeling of uh, uh, like you know confidence and trust. I was saying that too in the talk. Confidence and trust in life and in ourselves and in what happens is liberation to me. That's what liberation is. Very similar to what maybe David is. Finding in the psalm, if you really chant the psalm and really feel that God is holding you and protecting you, maybe it's a similar feeling of confidence and, you know, um, having been met and seen and loved. Yeah. 
Yeah. Thank you, Norman. Uh, I think there's one or two uh, hands in the room. We have a little bit of time still. Uh, Jan? Um, the teaching that Norman has come to today is extremely valuable uh, because, at least for me, because um, I came from a tradition where the emphasis was on the life after this. And uh, it was a, a, an attempt to escape suffering by uh, emphasizing the life to come. Um, lately, I think I've had that wrong about this tradition. But um, uh, it seems to me that when you emphasize another existence, you uh, you de-emphasize the suffering in this existence, and you evade um, being grounded on life as we know it now. Yeah. That seems seems to be so to me, too. Although, uh, you can be sympathetic uh, to someone who's suffering in this life seems so overwhelming. That yeah, the only- Think of the people in Gaza and what's happening to them, and uh, that the only comfort they can find is uh, in in the in the imagining of a world beyond. And you can you can be sympathetic to that. Yeah. Thank you, Norman. Um, yeah, Eve also, and then yeah, maybe a couple more people here. Yeah, brief question. Um, what's the difference between seeking approval from a teacher and and wanting to be seen? I, I'm not sure. I, I I think I missed a word there. What's the difference between what and a teacher? Seeking approval from a teacher and wanting to be seen. Um. Well, I guess that, that to me they sound like. Almost the same thing. The reason, the reason why we would seek approval from a teacher, I guess, is that we want to be seen positive light, right, by by the teacher. But uh, I think in the end, uh, all seeking for approval is more attachment and uh, and suffering, right? So in the end, in the end, um, we have to realize that because approval means. Uh, you know, I could be, uh, I could be, I could be, uh, accepted. I could be rejected. I have to work hard to be worthy of being accepted and to let go of all the parts of me that need to be rejected. So all, all efforts to, to look for approval, I think we have to recognize as, as, uh, um, attachment aversion. So, so, uh, you, you, you know, if we, if we look within ourselves and we see, as we will see, the desire, not only for the approval of the teacher, but of everybody, we want everybody to approve of us, right? I mean, who likes to walk into a room and have a whole bunch of people look at us as if we were like, ugh, you know, nobody likes that. You know, we all much rather walk into a room and everybody thinks we're the most wonderful person in the world. Everybody would rather be approved of than disapproved of. So that's kind of a normal 
human response, but we have to see that that response is a kind of uh, at, at root it, it's suffering. We have to see that um, being alive, being a human being, or being anything, being a rock, you know, is itself a brilliant and wonderful a triumph. Always, no matter what the conditions are, and and that's that's our awakening is to is to know is to know that. And so uh, sometimes uh, when we respect, that's one of the one of the positive things about having a teacher that we respect. We have a teacher, we respect the teacher. We notice that we want the teacher's approval, and so we notice that and we follow that thought. But we don't allow ourselves to like shape our whole lives around the idea that we can get approval from the teacher if we are a certain way, and we better not be a certain way so we don't get the disapproval. That that's that's that I don't think that works out that well. But we all, yeah, we all we all need to be we all need to be seen and loved. But I think that that comes uh, from something deep inside of ourselves, uh, which you could say uh, is the Buddha inside of ourselves, or is is the God inside of ourselves, or whatever you want to call it. There's something in the universe that accepts us deeply. And then we need to find that something in ourselves. Norman, thank you so much for your responses. Um, Again. I think having Norman here, I think, is a wonderful opportunity. So if there's one more question. And Ben online. Okay. Uh, ben. Thank you, Norma, for that uh, wonderful talk. I was expecting to be intellectually engaged and uh, touched in the heart. I wasn't expecting to laugh as much as I did. So thank you. Um, a couple of themes of what you were talking about, trust, practice as embedded in living life, um, keeping a questioning spirit alive in the heart and continual engagement with things. You mentioned one or two specifics of practice with the Buddha along those lines and one or two specifics of above practice with um, individual practice with Dharma. I'm wondering if you can mention one or two things about specific practice with Sangha that have to do with the themes that you mentioned. Well, uh, I think with Sangha, it's really uh, a simple matter of consistent kindness and regard for everyone. I think that, uh, you know, I, I've been practicing with different sanghas for a long time, and I'm, I know of lots of sanghas, you know, that I visit and so on. And uh, there's always such trouble in sanghas, you know. There's always a lot, a lot of suffering, you know. People are always uh, having controversies. I'm sure you don't have any of that. In. <laughs> in other places where you can go you know people are like one of one of our sanghas now is having a tremendous problem and it's very sad you know that it's it's a sad thing people of goodwill sincerely wanting to practice and then they their relationships break down in, in bitterness and misunderstanding it's very sad so uh i think that uh uh but you know sad but we also learn from that too that's the dharma too right in other words that's not a mistake that's the dharma too 
but we would we would prefer it, wouldn't we, if if there was harmony? So I, I think that uh, that uh, to me, my impression is that most sanghas that I know about uh, in uh, North America are um, too ambitious, and they want to do stuff, and that's what they are arguing about, and that's what they are feuding about is their very noble ambition to further the dharma and further their group and they then in the name of that sacrifice their human relationships in the sangha so to me the most important thing in every sangha is that we have beautiful sangha relations much more important even than whether the group survives you know let the group die in the name of kindness and caring for all of its sangha members if that's if that's what happens rather than let's let the group be very successful and wonderful and everybody knows about it blah 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 but the sangha is not harmonious so i think israel at a time of a very bloody israeli offensive in gaza sorry about that i don't i don't know why i don't know why that guy started talking to me isn't that funny Could, did you hear that maybe yeah i have a i have a I, I have a microphone here that is a fancy microphone, which when I had it hooked up, I couldn't hear anybody. So I unhooked it. And why the microphone seems like it was playing a radio station. I, I don't understand. Anyway, the, anyway, I think I finished what I wanted to say about, about Sangha. Thank, so, thank, thank you so much for coming and sharing your teaching and your wisdom. Thank you for being feel like it's very helpful for all of us so oh, it's a really really a pleasure to be here with you guys and and uh, i hope to be there again one day in person that would be thrilling well that would be wonderful yes maybe so uh, so now we will close with the four bodhisattva vows together and then um with all the announcements coming attractions and so forth and uh, here in the temple, there'll be a period of temple cleaning and then, and then tea and treats and people online can take care of that for themselves. And thank you everybody for being here and please come again.